Hello, everybody, and happy happy publication day. My name is Steve. I'm here with author Mike Thorne. Mike, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I was just telling you uh, before we went live, I don't know anybody in New Brunswick yet, really. I mean, I've met some people in my program, but we're not close yet, and the pandemic is happening. So this is like, this is my celebration right here with you, Steve. Oh, wow. So thank you. Yeah, well, I was going to bring it up because you could be anywhere, and you're here talking with with me who's you know who am i so it's it's awesome that you you uh that we may were able to make this work because it's i feel very uh i feel very it's i'm very excited to have you on today as your as your book has been released it's great no i'm i'm happy to be here and last time we had a chat it was a really good conversation and i like the stuff you're doing on your channel so oh, cool. i'm hyped man yeah right on yeah so today is a, is a special day because your book uh peel back and see is a publication day and uh, we have some some people joining us today uh Derry is here hi Derry. our friend saf hi saf uh, of course ashley's here hey so ashley and my wife brandy's in the other room watching <laughs> <laughs> nice to meet you brandy <laughs> and uh Derry is here congratulations thank you oh, Derry. and uh, farrah rose smith is here oh hey uh, farrah Farrah's yeah. awesome. She's oh, uh, she's great. So talented. Such a cool person. Thanks for yeah. tuning in, Farrah. Yeah, definitely. Happy book birthday. Thank you. And, Appreciate it. And Book Blather is here. Hey, how are you and Olive doing? Yeah, I, I really loved Of One Pure Will. Um, that is a great collection of short stories. So if you haven't read that, go check that out by Farrah Rose Smith. Seconded. Great, yeah. great book, yeah. Such a unique voice, like yeah, nobody, nobody else writing like her in the genre world right now. So, yeah, it's very, very unique, very uh, it's a different kind of experience. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, like immersive, hallucinatory. Yeah, beautiful. Hallucinatory is a great way to describe it. Yeah, yeah, that's my kind of shit. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, your book, peel back and see. The last time we talked. You had mentioned you were still working on the book and you had mentioned that it was some of the darker stories you've ever written so how how do you feel now that the book is released and you're you're hearing feedback how was that experience been it's nerve-wracking i mean it's always nerve-wracking putting a book out there um but this one feels especially uh i feel especially nervous this time around because the book is so personal um and because it's also so recent, like two of the stories in this book, Havoc and Fade to White, which are the first and last stories in the collection, I wrote within the past few months. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this is just, um, it's really fresh. It's really raw. Um, I've talked a lot about this, but 2018 to 2021, the years in which I wrote the majority of this collection were the most personally taxing years of my life. Um, and peel back and see in many ways, just sees me like hanging on to writing basically as a life raft. So it's like, um, it's really raw. Yeah. And uh, so putting it out there it is nerve wracking, but people so far have been uh, uh, courteous and, uh, and merciful with their responses. So I'm grateful for that. Yeah, there were a couple of the, a couple of the stories, I forget the second story, especially, I forget the name of it, but it, especially, it got me at the end. Uh, it was like a wow, like the the conclusion a uh, mini mcdonough manor yeah that was a uh, love that story oh thank you yeah stood out to me because um yeah i don't know spoil anything for anyone but it reminded me of a few few different things so 
But so, and we were talking before we went live about how different it is now to release a book during the pandemic and there's not really gatherings and ways to celebrate. So how, how has that whole experience been? Has it been a big change for you? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> 2021 has been a very bizarre year because somehow I have ended up releasing three books this year, um, which is amazing, but it's been nuts. Um, and all three of them have been during, you know, some variation of lockdown. Um, and now I'm living in Fredericton where I don't know anybody. So it feels especially free floating this time. Um, I shouldn't say I don't know anybody. I've met some people in my PhD program and they seem lovely and great, but like nobody, I can be like, Hey, let's go celebrate with a drink, you know? And, and I could at least do that for shelter for the damned in darkest hours. Um, so yeah, like I said, I took the day off grading. That was kind of my celebration. So <laughs> it's better than nothing. Can't complain. Exactly. And Jeremy Fees here. He says, hi guys, three books in a year is phenomenal. Yes. That's quite a, quite a lot of work in one year. Thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really, like I said, unexpected. Um, Shelter for the Damned came out in early 2021. And then my agent suggested I float the idea to Journalstone of re-releasing um, Darkest Hours as a deluxe reissue through Journalstone. And I had another manuscript worth of short stories that became Peel Back and See. Um, and Journal Stone said, yeah, like we'll publish them all this year. And I was like, whoa, I wasn't expecting that, but I'll, t <laughs> I'll take it. So, um, yeah, yeah. Now I guess I have to speak, uh, hurry up and write the next one. Yeah, <laughs> so that's, that's it. Yeah, so that's it. That's all I've got for now. Yeah. And, uh, fit to be read is here. Hey, hey, fit to be read. Hey, thanks for tuning in. And I'm wondering, I was wondering, reading this collection and we had mentioned that they're so, they've been so close together. How do you decide which stories go into which collection? Do you have a certain theme that you follow or do, do, the, do you want the stories to flow in a certain way? I, I kind of see it as like an album with the music with music to try and get, is that kind of the way it works? It's very much like that. Although um, Darkest Hours had originally been released in 2017. Um, so that collection was basically written between 2015 and 2017, which were the years um, in which I, I completed my master's degree. So Darkest Hours, I think, was largely about um, academic anxieties, academic evils. There was some satire of academic, um, I guess, culture in many ways. And then it was also just my way of escaping from all of that stuff. So it was steeped in my love of classic horror and heavy metal um, so that, that uh, to me is like a time capsule of a specific moment in my life, peel back and see all the stories, maybe one or two exceptions were written after darkest hours so that they really do capture just different periods in my life. So peel back and see is post, um, post masters, Mike, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and I guess it's a lot darker, so who knows, maybe PhD Mike will, will like. I don't know. I don't know what to say, but um, <laughs> we'll see where the darkness takes me next. Yeah. And uh, Josh is here. He says, uh, Fredericton, greetings from Southern Ontario. Oh, hey, Josh. I was actually um, living in Ontario for a period uh, last year with an ex. Um, I was there for five months, I think. Um, 
in Toronto, but it wasn't like Toronto because it was the pandemic and she lived in like the beaches area. So uh, yeah, but there's some beautiful areas in Ontario. Uh, Derry says I'm from NZ, so it's Saturday here and I'm drinking beer in the sun. Cheers for being published. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers to that, Derry. I will raise my water. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Darkest Hours was, was also about a guy who eats hair. Uh, yes, yes, there is. A, <laughs> the first story in Darkest Hours is indeed about a man named Theodore who um, develops an unhealthy fixation on the consumption of eating hair, human hair. Actually, I guess all hair. He, he doesn't uh, discriminate. So, yeah. yeah, that was the first story in Darkest Hours. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great one, too. Thank you. And I'm not I, I'm not smart enough to know how you do it, but I wonder if there's a certain technique that you use because I've noticed in all of your short in all of your short stories that the characters are are very they they feel like real people in a short amount of time. I was wondering, are there techniques that you use to to con, to get the reader to identify with the characters and to understand them? Because it, it seemed I always get the feeling like even with a ten page story, I have a really clear view of who the characters are and I'm a vivid picture in my mind. Oh, thank you. Um, I mean, I guess, uh, I just try to be true to my characters. I think I have to know them in some sense. Um, none of my characters are direct, um, representations of anyone I've, I've met in the real world or anything like that. But usually there's some fragment of me or someone I've met in my characters. Um, so I feel like they, they have to, they have to feel authentic to me in order to write them that way. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's about what details you deploy. So in, in short fiction, you are dealing with fewer words, fewer pages. So you, you do have to be attentive to what is being conveyed through dialogue, whether through the content of speech or the way someone speaks. Um, ditto for character actions. Every character action in a short story carries an implication. Um, so I, I'm, I'm usually more attentive to kind of finessing those things in later drafts. First mm -hmm. drafts, usually I'm just trying to move through the mechanics. Um, and then I have some trusted readers I'll usually send my drafts to um, who are very attentive. And I, 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 do, I do pay mind to that. How can I make this feel as authentic and as real as possible? I feel like that's my job um, as a writer. So, but I'm glad to hear it works uh, for you. That's, that's, I appreciate that. And uh, Pharaoh Smith says, "I've never have never forgotten that hair story." <laughs> well, thank you, Farah, and and sorry, maybe a little bit. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one to forget. You don't forget, you don't forget that story. And yeah, <laughs> and uh, how has your education changed your writing style as you've uh, been progressing through your career? I'm not sure. I mean, Shelter for the Damned uh, was originally written in my early 20s. Um, hmm. And I think that novel has a more kind of raw quality in some ways. Um, there's a lot of anger in that book. Um, there's a kind of, um, yeah, I don't know how else to put it. It feels, it feels, it feels different somehow. Darkest Hours, I think, um, is probably informed to some degree by some of the philosophy and theory I was reading while writing it. Although I, I never, um, uh, I never 
set out to write message stories. I never set out to, you know, convey a specific theoretical or philosophical idea through my fiction. Um, but inevitably, when I'm, you know, in these environments and having these conversations and taking these classes and teaching, these ideas are, you know, bouncing around in my head. So I do think they find their way onto the page, certainly in, in Peel Back and See. Um, I can see traces of Schopenhauer in particular and uh, Bataille and some other phil philosophers um, I was reading, but it's not like I, I was thinking, I'm going to write my Schopenhauer story right now. It just kind of, it resonated with me. His ideas resonated with me and I wanted to explore them, I guess, through fiction. Hmm. Uh, are there any art, are there any writers that you will go back and read their books to kind of get the creative juices flowing or movies or music that you listen to that that kind of get your your mind in the right place i don't tend to reread a lot um i think the main thing for me is that i read constantly um and that i read adventurously and that i read um with with a kind of sense of openness and curiosity so I try to read, of course, uh, uh, as widely within uh, the genre of horror and, and dark fiction more broadly, but I also try to read poetry. I try to read um, non-genre fiction, philosophy, um, biography, just anything I can get my hands on. So I think that that keeps me writing. I think reading is part of writing. Um, when I When I actually sit down to write, um, I will sometimes listen to music, not always. These days I tend to prefer really spare minimalist music. So either like ambient music like Brian Eno or Harold Budd or like really minimalist classical music like Debussy or Satie, stuff like that. Um, yeah, and movies, I mean, same thing as with fiction. I just try to watch adventurously and um, and you know, educate myself on the history of my genre, but also, you know, venture outside of that. Um, mm. So yeah, I think just being open as I think that that's key as a writer being like, um, I guess it's a cliche, but writers often talk about the necessity of being like a sponge, you know, being attentive, soaking things up uh, in both the real world, uh, whatever that means now. And uh, <laughs> I don't know what that, what the hell that means. And actually I do think peel back and see a lot of the stories are informed by the fact that I, I wasn't really functioning within the real world, so to speak. A lot of these stories are about people who are being kind of um, dissolved um, and, and kind of absorbed into screens and surfaces in a way. Um, so I think that probably informed the, the book too. Hmm. And I noticed that you're, I think you're you're really smart with how you roll out, how you release your book, how you appeal to certain readers that you know, uh, that you're familiar with, and will will kind of get the word out about the book, and that's coming out. It's going to be released, and they release reviews. I think that's really smart because now with uh, with social media and promoting a book, it must be really difficult to to always have a presence. Because uh, I was talking with uh, Catherine McCarthy the other day, and she mentioned. That if she takes a break from social media, she'll see a, a drop in sales. She doesn't have a presence. Mm -hmm. So, what is that like for you uh, with the book release coming up? Do you feel a, like some kind of pressure to to remain have have a presence online or on social media? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's vital. I mean, it's uh, 
I, I, I often describe social media as a necessary evil, and I, I place equal emphasis on necessary and evil. I do um, think there are a lot of things about social media that are, are quite terrifying, especially um, the way it's affecting us on like a, a social psychological scale, I think um, uh, I, I find deeply disturbing. But at the same time, this is the world we live in. Um, and I, you know, I happen to be a fiction writer, um, for better or worse. And, uh, I want people to read my work. So I, I use the platforms and I've also met a lot of, you know, really cool, supportive, engaged people, present company included. Um, so that's nice. Uh, yeah. And I, you know, it's, it's really nice to be able to like talk with readers and, and with other just genre freaks as well. And other um, fans of, of literature more broadly. So, um, I don't know. It's, yeah, it, it is a necessary evil for sure. I don't think there's any way one could deny that. Um, I don't, I don't even know like how I would get my work out there if not for social media. I have no clue. I wouldn't even know where to start. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, like I don't, I don't have a publicist. I don't have a marketing team. I have an agent. I have a good publisher, but there's only so much uh, they can do as well. So, yeah. Yeah. And uh, Jeremy says, I feel like Mike Thorne does an amazing job with social media, giving lots of interviews online and tweeting out when they are happening. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I, I try. I, I do. I, I treat it like, um, like a part-time job in a sense. Mm -hmm. Like, um, I, I care deeply about my, about writing and about, um, this part of my life. So I, I devote a lot of time and energy to it. Um, and I never say no to anything really. I don't, I don't think I've ever said no to an interview or review. I actually can't think of a single case. So that's part of it is, you know, say yes. <laughs> uh, it's nice that people ask to do these things. So. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you, <laughs> lucky for me right <laughs> no it's i mean it's a pleasure for me too it's fun it's and it's like um why wouldn't i want to like talk with people about uh, the work it's nice that people want to do that it's it's a privilege so and uh book blather says that was definitely on display in peel back and see yeah. the fear of social media i'm assuming he means yeah um yeah it's it's definitely a big part of that book um and I think that that could be another thing that that really expressly sets Peel Back and See apart from Darkest Hours. Darkest Hours does have its contemporary stories, um, but I, I, I think it's really kind of entrenched in 1970s and 1980s horror cinema and fiction in a lot of ways. Um, Peel Back and See, I think uh, I kind of pull away from that a little bit, um, not for any like reason that I don't still love that stuff, but um, I just wanted to write more directly about um, like m my pain, contemporary experiences, contemporary realities. Um, so yeah, I, I'm writing, you know, there's a Twitter story in here. There's a story about a, a kind of um, occult torrent file. Um, uh, Havoc is about a, a live feed that might have implications of cosmic horror. Um, so yeah, I, I just tried to, I guess, lean into that stuff. Definitely. And uh, Josh says, Mike, you mentioned you've had a really hard few years. I'm sorry to hear that. 
how have you managed to keep writing? My own hard times of the past couple of years have killed my creative drive. That's a great question. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Um, yeah, it's fucking hard. Um, it's not. Um, I think there's there's often this this kind of romantic myth of um, the tortured artist or whatever. When in reality, if you deal with um, a condition like severe chronic depression, like I do, or anxiety, or when you have repressed and immediate trauma clawing at your door simultaneously, which I did, um, you are almost debilitated. And in many cases, like I couldn't move. I had, you know, weeks where I, I couldn't get out of bed. Um, and when you're dealing with that level of, of um, suffering and not to, I don't want to like make myself out to be a victim. I'm just trying to be matter of fact about it. It is fucking hard to write. Um, part of what I did in Peel Back and See is I just tried to, I guess, um, find my way through the paradox of writing through a condition that made me not want to write. And the result is stories like Havoc, like Fade to White, like Deprimer, um, like The Voiding. So I don't know how readers will feel about those stories, but I had to, I knew I, like I had to get this out in some way or express this in some way. Um, and I think that's okay to lean into your feelings and write your way through them and, and maybe taking the pressure off yourself too. So um, instead of thinking, oh, this has to be publishable or this has to have whatever, a three act structure or something, just try to shut all of that noise out um, and just write your way through the feelings. Maybe something will come of it, maybe not. And either way, that's, that's fine, I think. Um, yeah, and I think there's also this um, sometimes out of good intentions, the negative consequence of, of people saying like, there's no such thing as writer's block, uh, writers write these kinds of narratives that people like to shout about on social media, I think can, can actually have um, unse unforeseen side effects for people going through this stuff. Cause it's like, well, it's all well and good if, if that's the case for you. But for some people they have, you know, material conditions that prevent them from doing so at times. So just be gentle on yourself, be kind to yourself. If you're going through a period where it's just not coming, that's okay. That's fine. Like wh why, why does it need to happen right now? Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if that's helpful at all, but that's the best I can offer. It's, it's amazing how, how difficult being kind to yourself can be. It's, oh, fuck uh, yeah. it's a different type, different type of feeling. And it's something you have to consciously think about and not just let it come on its own, but it, it is harder than it sounds sometimes. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. One of the yeah. hardest things to do. Because it sounds simple, but putting it into practice and being conscious of it is another, is a whole nother challenge. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And often there's a dissonance between a kind of intellectual understanding of, of an issue and then like the emotional experience of it. Those things can be totally misaligned. So you can rationally observe, okay, here's why these thoughts are irrational, but then the irrational thoughts are so persuasive and so loud that you kind of give into them anyway. So human brain, fun stuff, the mind, gotta love it. Yeah. Do you find, uh, when you, when you write through these feelings and these thoughts, do you, do you, uh, feel like it's therapeutic for you to, when you finish a story and you look back and 
does it help you kind of get through those those negative kind of feelings? Sometimes, yeah. Um, I think all of my fiction, to some degree, is kind of therapeutic. So maybe in that sense, it's self-serving. Um, but yeah, I don't. I mean, I I need to I need to uh, express these feelings through fiction. Um, otherwise, like, yeah, they would just fester. Um, so for me, definitely, it's it is a form of of therapy. Writing fiction in general is a form of therapy. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lauren Lullaby is here, and hey. her, friend, her friend Caleb is here. I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and uh, Stacy's all booked is here. Hey, Stacy. So Caleb said he's here to stand me. I hope that's not yeah. literal, like a, a, a reenactment of the Eminem song "Stan," which is kind of like a misery situation. Thank you. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure if that was a mistype or if that was a, a reference. <laughs> to that song. I love it. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Dave says, I love them all, but uh, D Primer was actually one of my favorites. Oh, thank you, Dave. Um, yeah, D Primer, it's it's weird. That story um, uh, it is probably the most direct example of that, of just writing through the experience of depression. So there's this weird, I guess, metacognitive quality in the story where there's like a, a secret um there's a kind of service available where you can have depression excised from your body as this entity i guess um and i think i was sort of on some level wishing that that was possible and thinking through that conceptually what would that be like um if depression and anxiety and all of these issues had a physical manifestation you know what might it look like Uh, could we even see it could we describe it so I'm glad to hear that work. Thank you so much. And uh, Sap says, I think that's where Stan originates. It's a good song. <laughs> Very good song. Uh, Darius says, I haven't been able to, to work for several years for those reasons. And so when I say that I am so freaking proud of you, no, I, I, I understand what I mean. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And yeah, like I said, Darius, just um, uh, try to be easy on yourself. If, if the work is not coming that's okay. It's not. um, Yeah, I think sometimes we put these pressures on ourselves. And sometimes that can be counterproductive too. sometimes maybe what you need is like, uh, just to take a walk, maybe unplug. I don't know, watch an Adam Sandler movie, whatever. Sometimes that's what you need. And that's okay. Something lighthearted. Yes. Do you uh, do you plan breaks from or just a time that you unplug and get away from everything? Is that something that you try and do on a regular basis? I am very bad at that. Uh, probably, yeah, probably to a detriment. Um, uh, yeah, and I burn out. Like I've gotten sick in the past because I don't do that. Um, hmm. So I don't know. I should probably figure that out. Maybe I'll talk to uh, talk to my therapist about that. <laughs> scheduling and breaks yeah i don't i don't really i don't even um i don't stop working on weekends either like uh i don't know i, I, I probably should hmm. <laughs> something to think about yeah, yeah exactly and uh our friend ariel is here hello ariel, Reading hey, ariel. yeah I was, I was curious about what social media it seems like especially with uh, you know being an author to always have that presence must be really could be exhausting for for someone, especially with the with the book that's released or um, you want to get the word out. It must be really 
have that constant pressure to feel like you need to be have a presence yeah it can be um and 2021 has just been nuts because like i you know it was the three books back to back i also moved across the country for the first time ever to a province where i don't know anybody and i started my phd in september so it has been truly berserk like I, it's all kind of a blur um but again i'm i i really do feel grateful that anybody wants to talk about my work with me or review my work like that is a very good problem to have i'm not i'm not about to complain about that so um yeah but it's you know it's a it's a lot yeah yeah definitely i can i can see how that would be exhausting at times can and ariel says yeah i work i also work too much uh my condolences we should both um you know unplug every now and then yeah. uh, caleb says i have noticed that the monsters and horrors in your stories are very brief and abstract i love it and would let you know what other authors inspire you uh to write horror like that oh thank you caleb i appreciate that um yeah i i often think about um this kind of uh double-edged sword that all horror writers have to engage with, which is if you withhold too much, then readers are likely to accuse you of bluffing, you know, oh, you're just, you just don't, you don't actually have anything that terrifying to show us. And then if you describe or show too much, then you can run the risk of deflating the tension, so to speak. So mm -hmm. that's something I'm always trying to resolve. Sometimes I will just go you know, full out and just um, kind of lean into the absurdity of, of fictional monstrosity or whatever. But yeah, I do tend to kind of try to abstract and ambiguate as much as possible in as many areas of, of my fiction as I can. Um, in terms of inspirations on that front, I mean, I guess I think of people like uh, Kathy Koja, Thomas Ligotti, H.P. Lovecraft, um, even Edgar Allan Poe, I think often the, the horror is located in the psyche of the character um, more so than the kind of object of horror. So it's the, the, the subjective experience of horror more uh, foregrounded than the object of horror, I guess. Um, yeah, those are some people who come to mind. Robert Eichmann, Algernon Blackwood, um, William Hope Hodgson, uh, even some of Peter Straub's stuff to some degree. Um, there are lots of other horror writers I love who don't work in that mode, but, um, yeah, Shirley Jackson, I guess. Yeah. Lots, lots of different people. So many great books out there. It's hard to keep up. I know. I know. Yeah. And every, anytime people ask those questions, I kind of blank, but, <laughs> yeah. uh, Lauren, hey, Lauren, uh, he says, what is your, what is your area of study for your PhD? Uh, you were working on if they're in Fredericton. Hey, Lauren. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm doing my PhD in creative writing. Um, and I've kind of joked that ironically, the first semester of my creative writing PhD has been so busy that I haven't had time to do any creative writing. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's not entirely true. I'm taking a screenwriting course and we're developing uh, feature uh, outlines and treatments. And then we'll be writing like the first act of our screenplays. Um, and I'm taking a prose fiction course. Um, I submitted to prematurely because I wanted to be like step up. The instructor was like, come on, someone volunteer. And I idiotically said, I'll do it. And then I submitted like the first scene of a story that was not at all ready to share. So 
um, I learned from that experience. But uh, yeah, so that's what I'm doing: creative writing, PhD. <laughs> if you're if you're writing screenplays, how was that taking you out of your comfort zone to write? Go from writing short stories and, and novels to writing a screenplay. Was that a, a big change in your process? It is and it isn't. Um, I, I I actually started uh, with with more of an interest in film in a way. Like I for a while, I actually wanted to go into acting, uh, and I also considered writing and directing. I remember when I was a young teenager, I went to like Q and A sessions about Vancouver Film School. So that's always kind of been a big part of my my identity, I guess. Um, and I've always read a lot of screenplays. And interestingly, in my undergrad degree, um, my mentor, Randy Nichol Schroeder, had me reading mostly screenwriting uh, theory to, to understand narrative. Most of the principles are kind of applicable across both mediums. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, th there are differences for sure. Like I worked on a treatment of Shelter for the Damned with Jamie Blanks. That novel is very interior film. You have to show things. So thinking through how do you visualize that interiority, that was definitely like a tricky um, endeavor. But uh, yeah, it was an interesting one. And uh, Caleb says, I was going to say some of the situations in your stories really reminded me of the hospice. Thank you. Although I'm blanking on who wrote the hospice. My brain is porridge. I'm sorry. Oh, oh Eichmann. Yes, right. right. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, Eichmann's amazing. And uh, you mentioned the uh, screenplay for Shelter for the uh, Shelter for the Damned. How is that going? Is there any updates on that? Uh, the treatment is done. Uh, we're just like looking around for homes for it. I haven't written the screenplay, but the tr the treatment is basically a very detailed blueprint hmm. of what the film, what the shape of the film would would be, um, the key plot points, the key images, even some dialogue. Um, but yeah, I haven't written the script yet. And right now I'm working on, um, a treatment of havoc, the first story in peel back and see that's another one, Jamie and I've been batting ideas back and forth with. So yeah, those are the big ones. Oh, that'd be, that'd be awesome. Thank you. Yeah. And, uh, Kayla's here. She just released the review for your book at midnight she's on top of it. She had it on uh, publication day. We, oh. uh, we were watching last night at midnight when her video released. So. Oh, that's awesome. Thanks so much. Kayla's Kayla's the best. Thank you, Kayla. Really great. Really great channel. Uh, Ariel says my brain porridge. I'm going to start saying that. <laughs> it's a go-to phrase for me when in doubt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my brain porridge. And it, when reading, especially darkest hours and peel back and see too, but with darkest hours, they all felt like they could fit into a, um, like a outer limits or like a, a serialized, uh, hour, like a, uh, was it darkest or uh, Bl black mirror type of uh, series? Has it ever has that ever been something you've wanted to do? Is adapted into like hour long episodes? All the different stories you've written or a select? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, yeah, my phone my phone line and uh, email are open if anyone wants <laughs> wants me to do something. But yeah, I love that stuff. I mean, the Twilight Zone is a big influence. Um, I, like many uh, other kids of my generation, grew up with Goosebumps, which is basically like children's Twilight Zone. Um, so, yeah, I love that stuff. They'd be perfect for, for that. Because I think because they're so, uh, I mentioned earlier, but there's really vivid um, 
characters and environments and everything. So Thank it you. seems like it would be a perfect, uh, perfect way to to adapt. Uh, and Caleb says brain porridge is, is going to be the new Mike Thorne story. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so your next book is going to be brain porridge. All right. I, there's a there's a demand for this. I've got to come up with something. Yeah, let us know who we need to contact to get uh, someone to adapt your stories into a serialized uh, show. Okay, that'd be that'd be great. Yeah, let us know who we can harass. We'll we'll get it going. Mister Shutter, Mister Netflix. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, what's the was it um, the movie uh, production company that does uh, all the horror movies? Uh, I'm trying to Blumhouse. Mm, yeah, 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 they're doing cool stuff too. Yeah. And uh, I did have on my list of questions to ask you because I ha actually have a bone to pick with you. Okay. Because I saw a list on Twitter that you had you had for Kanye West albums, mm -hmm. and, and College Dropout wasn't number one. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm one of those weirdos who likes like some of the late career Kanye. College Dropout is great though. Yeah. Great album. Um, I actually like pretty much all of Kanye's stuff. He kind of lost me a little bit after Yeezus. But there's always something cool on all of his uh, releases, I find. So yeah. um, I'm glad he's there. I'm glad that we have an artist like Kanye who is so um, unpredictable and and out there and uh, just adventurous. I'm, I think it's important that we have artists like that, even if he can sometimes say and do maddening, <laughs> maddening things. Um, <laughs> but Yeezus was just like one of the most sonically uh out there records uh i had heard in ages i still like that album a lot but yes i i uh no disrespect to college dropout it's classic for sure yeah i wanted to give you a hard time about that one uh, <laughs> but no, I, I think uh was it 808 was your number one yeah uh, i think it was yeezus and then 808s those are my two favorites yeah oh, that's right yeah yeah, yeah. You, you can't really go wrong with any of those but yeah but I, I i do agree that we need someone like kanye even if he is crazy sometimes and does these wild things and just says just crazy stuff it's it's good he's there uh, absolutely i'm very yeah. glad he's there yeah yeah <laughs> yeah he's definitely one of a kind and even when he first uh he, he still had that that uh i don't want to say arrogance but that confidence even when in 2000 what for 2004 2005 when college dropout was was released he still had it you can tell he had something there was something special about him yeah yeah oh for sure yeah he's always he's always been he's always been his own man <laughs> that's for sure yeah he's yeah. one of a kind yeah and uh so curious because it one of my uh favorite questions recently has been what is your, what was your first job my first job well aside from like babysitting because i did babysitting um God, I'm trying. I worked as a dishwasher at like a pizza place. Uh, it was a short lived, I, sh I think it was short lived. I don't think it's around anymore. It was called Take and Bake, uh, Nick and Willie's Take and Bake Pizza. So they would sell basically frozen pizzas and then that was it. Like they didn't bake the pizzas in house. That was the whole thing, which doesn't, I don't know, <laughs> it's, it's an odd business model to me. Um, but yeah, I, I uh, very poorly and inefficiently washed dishes in the back um, and basically just like flirted with the girls who worked there. And I think I might have even been let go from that job. And then uh, I also <laughs> worked as a gopher on a construction site. I was also useless. At, I think 
one of the uh, recurring tropes in my life is that I'm kind of useless at most things. That could be another uh, part of the reason why I write fiction. Um, but yeah, I, I worked as a gopher on a construction site. I don't know why or how I got that position. I had to be driven to work by like other people on the crew. Um, uh, I, I absolutely useless. So those were two of my earliest. And then I worked at um, HMV back when it existed in Canada. I worked at Blockbuster Video. I worked at um, Chapters, uh, which is a Canadian bookstore chain. Uh, yeah, so all kinds of jobs. I think that uh, I forget the name of the. There's there's one that does the 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 frozen pizzas. They you kind of order a pizza, but they give it to you cold or frozen, <laughs> and then you go home. I never understood that either. It's, why am I going to pay for a pizza that's and go home and have to bake? I don't get it. Like you can get them at the grocery store, I guess, but like having an entire establishment devoted. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm missing something, but it always struck me as kind of weird. So, yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. it is it is really strange. Like, yeah, I just yeah. go buy a pizza, a few you know businesses down, and it's ready it's to cooked. eat. Yeah, it's ready <laughs> yeah. So I don't same price, that. but it's cooked. Yeah, yeah. That's really strange. Uh, Caleb says my first job was also was also dishwashing. You being a horror author, it makes a lot of sense now. <laughs> because you find some gross things in the dishwater. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I think working service jobs, you get, you get a fair bit of um, a good material for horror, too. You see some very ugly human behavior sometimes uh, working retail and service jobs. But uh, yeah, I, I actually liked a lot of those jobs, especially Blockbuster. That was the best. Um, yeah, that was, I mean, I got 10 free rentals a week. And I was a weird teenager, so like that was all I did was watch movies. So I would actually watch my ten rentals a week, and I just like cleaned out the yeah the store. So that was a cool job. Oh, uh, Papa, Papa Murphy's is the name of the business. Yeah, that does okay. the frozen pizzas. Yeah, really. Strange. And it's still going. Yeah, it's through the um, pandemic and everything. They're still still kicking. So smart. I guess it's a smart business model because you just need one or two people to put the pizza together and a fridge and ingredients. You don't have to cook them. Just so. One or two knuckleheads like 13-year-old Mike, I guess. <laughs> like, <laughs> probably not paying attention to what they're doing. Not um, many dishes to wash. Not many dishes. Yeah, exactly. I don't even know what I was washing, uh, but uh, there we have it. <laughs> And uh, Dave says, so while I felt there were some broad common themes throughout Peel Back and See, one thing I was curious about was that Havoc and Virus seem to have this have a very specific thematic commonality. Without spoiling, was there a particular motivation for that kind of story? Unless I'm imagining it, pandemic-inspired. Mm, yeah, good question. Um, Havoc is absolutely pandemic inspired. Um, like I said, I wrote Havoc and Fade to White within the past few months. Um, so those were pretty, you know, those were pretty close to the finish line in terms of getting them into the, the book. Um, but I knew the book needed them in a way because I felt like the primer was kind of at the core of some of the things I wanted to say and explore with this book. Um, and to me, Havoc and Fate to White just worked so well as bookends. Um, so Havoc, for sure. Um, I, I, I didn't want to write a COVID story, but I wrote that story while in lockdown. Um, 
And uh, I just, you know, tried to very frankly kind of address the conditions within which the protagonist was living. So, you know, he's doing virtual therapy. There are references to the fact that there's a pandemic. I tried not to be too like on the nose with references to masks or like stupid shit Donald Trump was saying or whatever. You don't want to like rely too heavily on that stuff, but certainly I wanted to invoke the contemporary context. Um, virus, I wrote a few years ago. Um, so that one, uh, I, I can't say was pandemic inspired, but it was, um, drawing on some of my fears around, um, technology generally. I wouldn't say I'm like a technophobe, but I think there are things about like what the internet, uh, harbors and, and what it, the potential it has, um, to reframe human society. That's really scary to me. Um, uh, virus was originally released on the no sleep podcast. And they asked me to rewrite the story in first person uh, because it works better in audio format. But to me, it was always like a, a, a limited third person, uh, narrative. So I rewrote it that way again for the book. Um, yeah. And it's, you know, I drew on stories. I remember from high school and junior high. Um, so it's, it's, uh, yeah, kind of an adolescent horror story in a lot of ways too with the pandemic being such a big part of, of everyone's life you can't get away from it no matter who you are but I, I would imagine it'd be hard to for it not to seep in somehow to your writing yeah for sure um and I think there are several stories um in the collection where that's very apparent havoc and fade to white especially but also to some extent offer to the adversary it's about an art scholar who becomes obsessed with this painting. But I think I was maybe like indirectly, again, writing about people being, you know, kind of subsumed by screens, subsumed by surfaces, kind of a dissolution of self in a way. Um, even Vomitus Bacchanalius, maybe to some degree, is about that. So. And uh, Ariel says, I'm a barber. I could give you some stuff. You could turn it to super scary stories. <laughs> Well, maybe I could write a sequel to Hair set in a barbershop. It would be so much more convenient for him if he... I don't know if he'd be able to contain himself, though. I think it'd be a much shorter story. Uh, <laughs> plus, spoiler alert, but Theodore is sort of kind of really dead. So yeah. maybe a prequel. I don't know. Yeah, a prequel could work. Yeah. Uh, and Virus is one of uh, Dave and Kayla's favorites. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And our friend Jay is here. Uh, okay, he's. I'm here. You can start. We've been waiting <laughs> on you, Jay, and now we can finally start. It's about time. Uh, Caleb says, "I feel like even if if not inspired by the, by the pandemic, the themes of isolation and desperation are more relatable than ever." So good release timing. That's a great point. Oh, thank you. Yeah, um, and it's it's interesting because like uh, the conditions of uh, depression and anxiety especially uh that i've been dealing with for a long time i don't i don't know i'm sure they were exacerbated in some way certainly affected by the pandemic but i also have a lot of social anxiety and i am very introverted so in some ways the the lockdown seemed kind of ideal to me hmm. which sounds like an awful thing to say but part of me was like oh great i you know i don't have to come up with excuses as to why I can't attend social events. I can just stay inside with my movies and my books and my music. Um, but uh, yeah, no, the, the, the stories are definitely about isolation, a lot of them. And, and uh, 
despair for sure a lot of despair even just the reality of of the pandemic as as a disease as a deadly disease that has wreaked horrible havoc on on so many people's lives um but also the way it has revealed um i think a lot of unsavory characteristics about humankind for me the most scary thing about the pandemic has been seeing just um a lot of the atrociously selfish behavior it's brought out in people that's scary um and I, I am kind of a believer in you know the idea that we we live in the world we create and the world we have created looks kind of scary right now so i don't know what that says about us but it's something i'm trying to work through in my in my fiction and uh, mr morningstar is here his uh, book lather was just singing my praises today I'm eager to read your work, sir. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I um, I got the email from uh, Dave. Dave was Dave the name of the mm -hmm. uh, book? Yeah. So okay. I got the email from Dave today. Um, and uh, yeah, the video was incredibly generous and really moving. So thank you so much for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Dave is has a great channel. Uh, let's see. I do the same though. I think they're talking about. Um, I'm not sure. I lost track. That's all right. Yeah. Um, you mentioned in your author notes that you were that you wrote September while fighting depression. Did getting that story out help with your depression? Uh, September. Oh, it it might have uh, deep primer. Sorry. Okay. Um, so sorry. What was the question? One more time. Um, you mentioned the author notes that you wrote uh, deep primer while fighting depression. Did that story help help with your help fight your depression? Um. I think we talked a little bit about that earlier, but yeah, I mean, it's a condition I, I live with, unfortunately. Um, I think writing fiction helps on some abstract level, um, but really it's something I, I try to combat with diet, sleep and exercise, um, leaning on resources, um, medication, meditation. I try a lot of different things. Writing is is vital for me, and I think it helps keep me sane to the degree that I am sane, which is debatable. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think I think it was important for me to write that story. And it helped me maybe it helped kind of consolidate or clarify certain things in my brain um, that I maybe wouldn't have been able to without writing that story. So in that sense, yes, it was helpful. I'd say I don't know if that answers. But uh, Ariel says the most scary thing about it for me is now knowing how many people would hide in a zombie bite. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's an interesting comment because like I've talked to a few people about this. Uh, what do we do with zombie narratives post pandemic now that we've kind of like lived our version of a zombie narrative uh, in, in our contemporary world? Um, I think Romero was very prophetic and was was kind of predicting a lot of this stuff. Um, but now that we've kind of gone through it, I don't know, like what, uh, what would a zombie, I just saw a film, uh, this year called the sadness that I watched through Fantasia Fest. And it's like very transparently a pandemic movie and it's kind of a zombie pandemic movie. Hmm. Um, and to me, it seemed to be trying to be really like outrageous and somehow it felt kind of, um, I don't know, kind of flat to me. I was like, it's too real. I don't know. So just some thoughts on that. I don't know. Yeah, I think uh, it might be a little too soon for, for tongue in cheek uh, 
pandemic this, uh, material. Like we're a yeah, too, yeah. Little too close. Exactly. I thought it, I actually thought it should be a lot darker. And a lot of people are talking about how crazily violent it was. I was like, yeah, but it feels a little bit like um, almost Looney Tunes to me. And like it didn't really lean into just the, the fucking heaviness of um, what what the pandemic has wrought. So I don't know. Um, I, I can't imagine good, like good tongue in cheek pandemic horror certainly anytime soon, <laughs> if ever. Uh, yeah. yeah. And who knows how long, how long it'll you know we're going to be in this mess? So could be a while. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? Uh, oh, Juan is here. Like by visions. Uh, what has struck me most about your work is that you study horror as much as write it. I've noticed Ligotti's, Thackers, and uh, I can't pronounce that name. Philosophical, <laughs> philosophical. Gusteva, yeah. Gusteva is perfect. Uh, tentacles squirming into your stories. Oh, thanks so much, Juan. Um, yeah, and Juan's channel is incredible. One of the like most uh astute thinkers of dark fiction i think like around um so thank you yeah i think uh, like i was saying earlier I, I i don't often consciously set out to write stories with a set of philosophical interests in mind but i think undoubtedly that stuff does work its way into the fiction because i you know i write scholarship on horror i do read a lot of philosophy especially philosophy related to the horror genre so i do think you know, it works its way in. Sometimes I pick up on those things in retrospect. Um, like I said, there's a lot of Schopenhauer in Peel Back and Scene, particularly, and Bataille. But yeah, Ligotti, Thacker, Kristeva, all influences for sure. Um, Kristeva was one of the key, one of the primary sources for my honors thesis, my undergrad, and Ligotti and Thacker were major sources for my master's thesis. So yes, these are all people I'm definitely like reading closely and thinking about. Wow. And Juan is, uh, his channel is incredible. And whenever I watch his videos, I just want to become a sponge and soak up as much information as I can from it's Brilliant. full of just great, great stuff. Just great. Uh, really, really great uh, videos, really thoughtful and insightful. Yeah. Sure. Uh, my question is what was your favorite scholarly work on horror? My favorite scholarly work on horror. And he also follows it up. Uh, I know that's a big question. So so feel free to name whatever comes to your head first. Yeah, it is. Uh, and it's a good question. Um, I'm going to cheat a little bit um, because I'm just like neck deep in Schopenhauer right now and, and weirdly finding a lot of comfort in Schopenhauer. Schopenhauer's not writing about horror, but I think there's a lot of horror in the observations he's making. Um, so The World as Will and Representation, Volume 1 by Schopenhauer would be uh, my pick, I think. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with that. But Powers of Horror by Kristeva is also up there. Um, yeah, I love I love the Horror of Philosophy trilogy by Thacker. I think that's really good stuff. Uh, Siran's On the Heights of Despair. Again, not a horror text necessarily, but I think there's something uh, to be to be taken from what Siran is doing and applied to horror, thinking about horror. So uh, I cheated, but what can you do? Arrest <laughs> yeah. me. Arrest me. <laughs> they might hear you. Uh, he also says, uh, that's a, I know it's a big question. Uh, 
Juan ate some bad licorice. I think Juan still has pumpkin seeds in his hair from that skit the other day. <laughs> from, from Pam. That was a great skit. Uh, Ariel says, I can't even read dystopian pandemic books anymore because of what we've been through. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't know if I've read um, any dystopian fiction since the pandemic started. I can't remember. Uh, I don't. I feel like I don't read a ton of pandemic or dystopian fiction anyway. I mean, obviously, like everyone, I've read The Stand. Um, but yeah, no, I, I that that makes sense for sure. Yeah, yeah, a little little too fresh. Mm -hmm. uh, and he says, <laughs> "You could maybe crown a Friday night stop." <laughs> And uh, so when you are, uh, when you release a book like you did today or publication day, is there anything special you do? Do you have a tradition where you have a, a special kind of drink or a meal or anything like that? I know it's a little different this year because of your recent move, but in the past, was there, were there anything uh, that you would do uh, on a regular basis when you released a book? Usually I like to enjoy a good glass of whiskey, preferably scotch. I'm actually out of whiskey right now. Oh. Um, and I have, uh, I, I had a headache for most of the day. So I was like, well, I guess. So to, like I said, today I treated myself by saying, I'm not going to start grading this next stack of essays until tomorrow. So that's, that's the main. And I went for a little walk. So that was nice. Just, um, yeah, took a walk. So that was good. Get some fresh air. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, our friend Jeff Lane is here. I reread the stand at the beginning of the at the beginning of the pandemic, and it actually helped because they're so extreme compared to COVID. Mm, interesting. I could see yeah. that. Could could be worse, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and once uh, I had a question for you because I know that you uh, you're very you you're into uh, art, art and movies and music and everything. So when, if someone were to ask you, what is art to you? How would you answer that question? Um, art is um, a refraction or an abstraction that is entirely separate from the world, but is also entirely of the world. And we have to hold that contradiction in mind. So, um, yeah, I don't think it's either thing. I don't think art is entirely, you know, entrenched in the material reality of our world. Um, and it's also obviously not this completely transcendent thing that's divorced from our material reality. It's both. Um, yeah, I do. I think um, I think the world makes art. I don't think art makes the world. Um, that's a key point of belief that I have. I don't. I don't know if art shifts reality in any way. I think art helps us process and move through and think about reality. Um, and I think that's that's the only task of the artist if we want to ascribe a task to the artist, which I think is a big question too. Um, but yeah, is, is maybe just um, to observe. Hmm. Yeah. And I wonder if how differently art, because we, we've talked a little bit about how polarized everything is now and how every, you know, there's separate camps that you have to be in and everything's so, so much conflict. Mm -hmm. I don't wonder if art uh, will be the same after all of this. Because oh, you know, there's two black or white and it's, 
uh, real scary. I, th I think it already is. Um, I think there are ways in which art is often read as if it is simply a machine for messages, um, as if it is, uh, that's all that art is and does. I find that, I find that idea appalling and deeply depressing. And I don't want to live in a world where that's all that art is. Um, because the muck of reality is, is horrific enough without us having to chain art to that bullshit. Mm -hmm. Um, and I also think we, we run into situations where depiction is, is read as endorsement, which seems again, just bonkers to me. I, I don't, I don't even understand, um, I don't know if art could exist if we all believed that because we wouldn't be able to depict conflict because we wouldn't be able to depict anything unsavory. Um, so I do think there are ways in which I think a lot of these problems are facilitated by social media and the way social media kind of corrodes critical thinking in many ways and also uh, encourages a kind of corrosion of artistic ambiguity. Like, mm -hmm. no, you have to make it clear what you're saying. What is your message? What is your theme? Um, and I've kind of reached a point where I say, fuck that, because I'm not interested in that kind of art. Um, that might upset some people, but that's me. So, yeah. yeah. And I, I wonder how much, um, and we talked a little bit, little bit before about promote, promotion on social media and having a presence. And I wondered, and I talked to Joseph Sale about this earlier, uh, earlier today is I wonder how much of, of our attention spans with social media have effect have, cause we need that constant presence to remind everyone I'm here. Yeah. This is my work. And I wonder how much of the, of our attention spans have changed with social media and technology because we have our attention spans are much shorter. And I don't think it's something that we've consciously done. I just think it's happened over the last 20 years or so. Oh, undoubtedly. Yeah. Um, I mean, I notice it with, with myself too. Like I, um, I, I actually took a long time to get a smartphone. I was so resistant to it. I took a long time to, uh, I, I left Facebook for a very long time. I took forever to get Twitter. Um, so when I was just like early twenties, flip phone, Mike with no social media presence, I was reading, you know, 120 books a year, just devouring fiction. Um, because those were my phone. Those were my smartphone in quiet moments. I would pick up a book. Um, since getting social media, you know, most years I'm reading maybe 50 books in a year. So that's, you know, that's a staggering difference. And I know, you know, I, it's like, well, there's a clear, I mean, I think there are numerous factors, but certainly social media plays a role. Um, yeah. So I think that's, that's real for sure. And I know they, they build these platforms around bringing us back constantly. So they're, Oh yeah. They're good, at what they, they're good at what they do. Yeah. I mean, they're reaching deep into our brain stems, um, you know, similar to the way, you know, addictive substances, uh, you know, work. So we're actually, I think a lot less, um, in control of our use than I think we believe we are. Um, and I think we should hold these businesses more accountable, but that's just me. I don't want to get up on my soapbox about it, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, especially recently with the, uh, I forget the uh, whistleblower from Facebook and all the different, yeah. you know, the, all the, and it's obvious they do all these things, but you know, yep. it's going to be up to all of us to just kind of say that's, 
that's enough or just stop using it if we can or at least uh taper off the time spent yeah i don't know if i can imagine that happening again maybe that's the pessimist in me i'd love to see that and i think um in many ways i think we probably need to i just don't know what that looks like um but uh one can hope mm -hmm. yeah yeah I, I hope so i think uh, maybe the the newer generations will We'll see it as a way, to re a way to rebel and not use as much social media. Fingers crossed. My fingers crossed. But I have uh, I have been wondering because I I, I started using Twitter uh, earlier, I think January, February this year, and um, I was resistant to it at first. I didn't want to use it, and then now mm -hmm. I, I've been using it more often. And you know, obviously, good things like this come out of it. But um, there's another platform called Vero who doesn't they don't use a an algorithm or ads. And I've, I've noticed a huge difference in what's what the feed is looks like there versus Twitter. Hmm. And I start to wonder if, if I've, if I'm dependent on the algorithm, if I've gotten used to the algorithm so much that it's odd for me just to see the people I follow and that's it, instead of certain things being boosted to encourage a response. If I'm just seeing, you know, just everyday posts versus something that's going to incite or going to, um, you know, get a reaction mm -hmm. that is, uh, is promoted as is brought up and make you know, they make sure that you see it just because it's, they want you to be engaged. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Dave asked, maybe I missed it, but can you share which, what classes you teach Mike? Um, so currently I'm TAing for an introduction to short fiction course. Um, I'm not the instructor of record, but, uh, in the past I've been the instructor of record for, um, introduction to literary analysis and English composition, uh, both of those several times. I, at one point taught a communications class. I still don't really understand. Uh, what that class was about, but I got through it. Um, and uh, yeah, so, and I also, during my um, undergrad, I taught grammar workshop tutorials. So, uh, and I, it, during my master's degree, I TA'd for Shakespeare and detective fiction. So a little bit of a few different things, I guess. Do your students ever read your books and come back and ask you to sign them or anything like that? That'd be kind of fun. Uh no, that hasn't happened yet. Um, there was one moment uh, in a class. I taught. It's weird when you teach college because these are all adults. Um, so one of them was like, hey, my friend said she heard you on a podcast or something like in the middle of class. And it's awkward. <laughs> yeah. like, OK, but let's uh, let's talk about the book. So <laughs> yeah. but that's the only moment. Oh, that's, that's, yeah, that's kind of kind of awkward. Our friend Joshua Marcel is here. Hey, Josh. Hey, Josh. Thanks for coming by. Yeah, thanks so much. And uh, Jeremy says, I found that Kenneth Branagh's version of Frankenstein was a great film to watch during the pandemic with Victor Frankenstein trying to convince people how great vaccines were saving lives every day. <laughs> uh, Frankenstein is actually probably my most taught novel. Side note. I love that book. What is it about Frankenstein that you love so much? Um, I'm I'm always really interested in the relationship between fear and knowledge and horror and knowledge. Um, 
and I think there's some disturbing things that Frankenstein reveals about um, the creature's uh, education um, as he becomes more educated, uh, this, this kind of alien presence finding his way into human society, the more he learns about us and the more he learns, the, the, the scarier things look. I think that's really interesting. Um, and I like it as a, a novel about parenthood. And I also think it's, it's really cool to think about in terms of genre because it's, you know, one of the earliest science fiction novels and, and a very formative horror novel. So, so to think about the way it's hybridizing these things is, is amazing. And Mary Shelley wrote it when she was like 18, which is mm. fucking mind blowing. Like that an 18 year old could be, you know, could, could conceive of this book that we're still talking about. This was published in 1818. Like that's uh, a, <laughs> that's no small accomplishment. Uh, Juan says, I have a friend who taught a course on dystopian literature right, right when the pandemic started. Teacher Mandel's Station Eleven, as something as everything went to shit, must have been surreal. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, I had a friend teaching a course on pandemic fiction, actually, too, um, midway through the pandemic. There are probably a lot of academics doing that because they think, you know, what's timely, what's uh, what's zeitgeisty. So uh, there we have it. Yeah. And it sounds like uh, Dave said, did not love Station Eleven. And Juan, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Some yeah. spirited debate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Good thing Caleb's in there to uh, to yeah. settle everything. Yeah, just <laughs> diffuse the situation. Yeah, uh, Priscilla's here. Hey, Priscilla. Uh, hi, Mike. How do you discipline yourself to write around the call of social media? Hey, Priscilla. Thank you. Um, how do I discipline myself to write around the call of social media? Ah, I struggle with it. I think in the past when I've been most productive, it's when I'm very regimented with my writing. I'm, I feel like for the past few years, I've been trying to find my way back into something like a routine. Hmm. Um, the, the novel I'm writing right now, Cloven Hoof, I wrote a big chunk of it, uh, during a pretty brief period in which I would wake up at, I think it was five in the morning. And I would write for two hours before getting ready for work. And the key thing was I would not look at my phone and I would not open my emails or anything. It was just me, a pot of coffee and the book. Um, and I think, you know, that's probably key before your head is filled with all the shit that, you know, gets put into our heads throughout the day via our smartphones, via our daily interactions, um, via all these different stimuli. Um, I think there is something to be said for that early morning loopy clarity um, <laughs> as much as I hate to admit it because I'm really not a morning person, but I do think there's something to that. So yeah, but I'm still figuring it out. Yeah. Yeah. It is tough to uh, yeah. be distraction free. Uh, Jeremy says there's a horror image reaching deep in deep into our brain stems. <laughs> maybe partially uh, invoked in my story at Gorgoyama 2013. Juan <laughs> uh, says, I think that's why I love BookTube. It's one of the few internet communities that insists on getting everyone off the internet to go read with mixed results. <laughs> totally. Well, yeah, I love what you guys are doing. This is so cool. Like, this is one of the things that keeps me, um, I don't know, 
uh, again, to the degree that I am optimistic, which I'm usually not really at all, but I think it's nice to see that this exists. I'm like, well, this is fucking cool. There's a community of people who are excited about books and reading and talking about books and reading. That is um, amazing. I love that. So mm -hmm. respect. So many great people that, uh, you know, in the community that we've, that, uh, that I've met over the past year or so. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jay says, but you would all miss me without these platforms a lot. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I don't know about that, Jay. I, don't, I'm not <laughs> sure. I guess we have to keep them. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, okay, that says, Jay, you're the reasons I, you are the reason I'm addicted to social media. Oh, he's the devil. I see. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. Prince of Darkness. Uh, so Jeff says, without social media, I would have never found this crew. And that's that's the thing is, it there's so many great things that come out of it. You just have to, you know, it's just it, you can go the opposite way. So for sure, uh, yeah. I mean, I have made some incredible connections through social media, and I can't, you know, I can't. I don't want to like understate how much that means to me. Like I met. Jamie, Jamie Blanks through Twitter, and he has become an incredible friend and, and collaborator. I dedicated Peel Back and See to Jamie. Like he's been a major presence in my life. Um, I met Jeffrey Reddick, the creator of Final Destination, also has been like a phenomenally generous and supportive person. Um, Kathy Koja, like these people are my heroes and and I getting to meet them, you know, I don't know if I would have had the opportunity without social media. And those are three among many, like SP Muskowski, Robert Dunbar. Um, I could go on and on and on. Um, Farah, Farah showed up earlier, like lots of lovely people, all of you, everyone who's attending this. So um, yeah, I don't know. Okay, fine. I'll admit it. Some good stuff comes out of it. So whatever. <laughs> so you've been hopeful already. You're turning. There we go. There we go. Uh, Jay says, I swear I wouldn't do Twitter. Brad Proctor, Brad Proctor got me on it. And I've made a ton of writing friends, so I guess it's not all bad. There you go. Still waiting for Jay's uh, short story collection. Uh, Brandon says, I wake up at 5 a.m. to get my best reading in until 7. No distractions, just me and my book. Yeah, that's cool, Brandy. I've, I found that too. Um, and actually, that time that I used to use in the morning for writing, I now use for reading because I just the amount of material I have to read for my PhD. There's just not enough time in the day. So I, my morning, I, I get up at six now, not five, but I do read for at least an hour before I do anything else. Um, and I love, that's like, that's my favorite hour of the day. Hmm. It's quiet. Sometimes it's still dark out. Um, and just the, the, the silence and the, you know, kind of just not making yourself worry about anything, just you and the book. Yeah. She hmm. says, it's really nice. Uh, do you are you a fan of ebooks? Do you read a lot of ebooks, or do you try and stick with uh, paperbacks or hardcovers? Yeah, I like ebooks. Um, I, I feel like I mostly read paper books. Um, I don't have anything against ebooks. I have a, a Kindle that I use. Um, it's it's nice to have like the quick access. Like recently, I was like, I I really want to read another Kathy Koja book. Um, and I didn't I didn't really know of anywhere locally that I could get one right away, so I just downloaded. Uh, the blue mirror right there um, so that's nice like the instant access that's cool mm -hmm. yeah it's a, it's, a, it's a little too convenient sometimes <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah true true yeah <laughs> uh, jeremy says mike thorne is more is 
is in more booktube videos than some booktubers it's true see this concerns me i worry i'm like are people tired of looking at my face and hearing my voice i'm tired of it so uh thanks for putting up with so much of me uh yeah I, i've been around a lot i guess no it's great it's good that uh, I think it's really smart that you are involved in the community and you uh, foster relationships with with um, creators and and readers because it's it's great to get to know you and your perspectives and your process and your experiences and it, it makes everyone feel closer to you and uh, oh, good. can relate to your work so I think that's that's a that's a really smart thing to do I wish more authors would would do that but I, I know some aren't aren't comfortable doing that kind of thing so it's understandable. Uh, Jay says, I have to go do paper cuts. I will re I'll watch the rest later by all. Have a fun Thanks time. Thanks for tuning in. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Juan says, I do all my reading at night, but I pretty much do everything at night with those precious random spurts of motivation. Oh, that's interesting. Those um, those uh, nighttime creative organisms are fascinating to me. And I do know some. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. I don't get it. By the end of the day, I am just useless. I'm tired. I feel like I need a blood transfusion. I'm like, maybe I can have a shower. Chances are I'm too tired to even do that. Like I can't, I'm, I, I've probably done some writing at night, but uh, very rarely it has to be morning for the most part for me. So that's interesting. What is your ideal writing environment? Um, I'm not too fussy. I like, um, I think it's nice being around books. So if I want to like pull something out and for reference, I can do that. So I have an office now. This is not something I've ever had in the past. That's really cool. Um, so the fact that it's like a space that I can devote to writing is good. Um, I actually in the past really liked going to cafes to write because I think there's a cognitive shift that happens when you switch locations. Um, but again, due to the pandemic, that's just not a thing I do anymore. Um, I miss that a lot because uh, I think, yeah, in a way, cafes were the best for me. And I would have headphones on, play some music. And um, because then you're telling yourself, I have come here to write. You're kind of telling your brain and your body that. And I think it helps get the juices flowing. So, hmm. yeah. Uh, Kev says, I'm glad I'm not, the, I'm glad I'm not the only one trying to turn my life around at 3am. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my brain is trying to turn my life around at 3am mostly by, you know, sending me anxious signals, but that's not a good thing. I can't, uh, I don't know. Uh, Darius says joining, joining us on booktube makes an author so much more approachable and I'm far more likely to find an, a connection with to their writing when I felt part of the conversation. Oh, cool. Well, that that's good to hear. I mean, and I love doing these things. Like I said, it's like, I love that I'm able to talk to like fans of this stuff and people who maybe read my work and, and other writers. And um, that is truly one of the best things about uh, this dark, murky thing we call the internet. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, are, there are some positives. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, with, <laughs> with, with fall coming up, do you have any, uh, do you have a favorite season or do, do your moods or, or writing styles or what you, the kind of entertainment you enjoy change through the seasons? Yeah. Fall is my absolute favorite for sure. October is my favorite month. Um, 
So every October, I try to make a point, no matter how busy I am, I have to watch at least 31 horror films. I do end up watching short films sometimes, but I pretty much met my goal this time around. So I did a lot of rewatching this year because with like lots of podcast interviews and stuff, because I um, tend to run run my mouth off about movies a lot. I have like movie podcasts saying, hey, do you want to come talk about movies? So I had uh, uh, some people ask me if I wanted to do an episode about Rob Zombie. So I rewatched some Rob Zombie movies. Um, I, I was invited to do this one uh, called Force 5, where he asked me to pick my favorite horror movie from five different subgenres. So I, I rewatched a lot, but that can be fun too. Um, and I had a friend come visit who was like, I can't watch scary movies alone. Can you can you watch like The Exorcist with me and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre with me? So I did, and that was fun. And it's fun seeing her reaction to those movies. So, <laughs> yeah. And uh, Caleb says, "Mike, we will never be tired of you. You still need to go on Juan's channel." Oh, that's very sweet. Thank you. I would love to go on Juan's channel. That would be yeah. amazing. Uh, Caleb is right, Juan. Why are you not interviewing Mike? He said he's. He always says yes. <laughs> that's that right. Be, that'll, yeah, that'll be one I would definitely want to see. Send me a message. Send me an email. I'd be happy to. Definitely. And uh, with your Rob Zombie uh, podcast that you discussed, Rob Zombie movies, which movies did you rewatch for that? So they told me they specifically wanted to look at House of a Thousand Corpses, The Devil's Rejects, and The Lords of Salem. So we just did those three. And we touched on like his Halloween films and his later stuff, but that was like the three we really dug into, which was cool i've uh, i've spent a lot of time with rob zombies movies so um it was good to have the opportunity to blabber on about them a bit that was cool how was how was what are your thoughts on lords of salem that's the one i haven't seen yet it's i'm actually wearing a lords of salem shirt uh <laughs> uh funny yeah it's uh it's my favorite actually and i it's oh, wow. probably my favorite horror film of the 2010s one of my favorite horror films of like the past 20, 30 years. I think it's one of the better genre studies of addiction and of um, the way like lineages and pasts can haunt someone and can plague someone and house themselves in the body and the mind. It's very different from his other work too. It's it's um, like, it's still very much a Rob Zombie movie. So it has uh, his sensibility all over it, but he, he was drawing on things like Rosemary's Baby and The Shining and even some Italian horror from the seventies. So it has a, a, a different vibe, um, but yeah, I love it. Highly recommend Lords of Salem. You have to watch that. And uh, Hans says, fuck it, let's make it happen. I would love that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, happy, happy to do it anytime. Just uh, say the word. And uh, Jeremy always gives me, well, it doesn't always, but he likes to give me grief about t-shirt stuff. So nice t-shirt question. And uh, Jeff says, I initially thought it was a He-Man t-shirt since I could only see the top. Yeah, All like right. That. I will reveal it in full. Yeah. There we go. Lords of Salem. Proof. Proof. And uh, uh, Stevenson says uh, it had some frightening imagery, I thought. Very jarring. Yeah. Oh, it really does. Uh, there's some... It's very surreal too. Um, and it's interesting because uh, Rob Zombie originally had uh, a kind of more conventional plot in mind and, and a bigger scope too. But he was working on, I think, a 22 day schedule, very limited budget. The budget is like just over a million dollars. 
So it, it ends up becoming this kind of weird, slippery, hallucinatory thing because he had to cut a lot. Um, but there's also a novel version he co-wrote with someone else. So that's kind of cool to read. Too. Yeah, that's so uh, Juan just brought up Brian. So yeah, he co-wrote a novelization with Brian Evenson. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Um, it's it's cool to see again, like the scope of Zombie's original vision for it. Um, but, Is there a like a extended cut or director's cut of Lords of Salem that you know? Of? No, I, I I listened to his commentary recently, and I've listened to him talk about it a lot, and it sounds like basically the schedule was so tight that there wasn't really a lot of extra stuff they could even shoot. So mm -hmm. I think it's pretty much is what it is. I am, however, a little bit pissed at Rob Zombie because he promised us a director's cut of 31 and we never got it. So Rob Zombie, you are a hero of mine. Uh, I know you're listening to this. Please <laughs> give me the director's cut of 31. Yes, he's a regular. Uh, so yeah, I was about to ask you about 31, what your thoughts were on it because I wasn't really quite sure what to expect, but I really enjoyed that movie. I thought it was great. I did too. Yeah. Um, it's very fucked up and very disturbing too. Um, yeah. I, I actually think it's in a way like one of the better movies about Trump's America. Um, just like lower class uh, warfare that's being observed by the aristocratic elite for their amusement. And you don't really... They, they they're not really given much reason beyond the yeah, base level amusement um and richard break in that uh is so fucking good so good yeah yeah he really goes for it in that movie you, you could tell he was really i mean he just yeah incredible yeah, yeah incredible performance very convincing <laughs> yeah yeah oh it's it's a savage movie i thought sherry moon was that was one of her better performances too in that in that movie definitely yeah uh, lords of salem too she's uh phenomenal in that as someone just like grappling with these demons of addiction and traumatic past and and stuff like that Th i think those are my two favorite performances of hers but uh she's great i love sherry moon zombie yeah. uh what were your thoughts on on zombies halloween movies i love them um i think they are to their um to their benefit they are very much their own thing i think mm -hmm. uh, it's obvious that rob zombie reveres the original film um and respects it and i think his way of uh paying respect and in a sense is by going his own direction because i think he knew he couldn't replicate what carpenter had done um and i like how the second film just sort of like uh dives into the psychic territory of the characters it's it's very it's filled with you know dreamy imagery um and it kind of delves into the unconscious of michael myers which is a cool entry into uh his relationship with his sister um yeah i love them i know i don't know they're i think they're still pretty divisive right like not everybody yeah i think so i think you have the 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 camp who loves the old movies and i think no matter what you do they'll always love those older movies and so it's it's a no-win situation for some of those people. Yeah, yeah. I love him. Yeah, but I, I like you mentioned. I think it's great that he went. He did his own thing with it, and he didn't try to recreate the original movies. And he just did his own thing with it, which is, I'm sure that's a little nerve-wracking to to just to take something like those movies and do have your own vision for it without feeling like you're doing a disservice to the originals. 
So that's got to be tough. For sure. Yeah, I think it's an impossible position to be in because, you know, people say, well, you have to pay tribute to the original. But yeah, if you just like directly remake the original as you know Gus Van Zandt made that kind of experimental film Psycho where he remade it basically shot for shot in color there are some differences and people despise that film I think it's an interesting experiment um but then yeah you know if you go too far they say well why did you even call it Halloween so you can't win as you said yeah. uh Juan says my favorite Rob, Rob Zombie is Halloween my favorite Trump era film however is Rambo Last Blood <laughs> I love First Blood, uh, and I like the Rambo movies, but I haven't seen Last Blood yet. I've been meaning to, so I will have to check that out. Mm. Yeah, First Blood is a classic. Good movie. Yeah. Uh, Caleb says, I think I heard someone say Zombies Halloween is like Halloween 3. Great horror film, but not really a Halloween film. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Um, and I guess I'm not like, I don't know, going into it, I, I, I didn't have expectations that it needed to do any specific things you know if you i feel like if you just watch it on its own terms it's mm -hmm. you know there's there's a lot to enjoy there i think especially the second film which is very much a rob zombie movie and a very adventurous rob zombie movie yeah and halloween 3 season of the witch that movie rules um hmm. and it uh you know unfortunately because it didn't adhere to this michael myers stock and slash formula it uh it got kind of uh shut out by a lot of people but it's a great movie. Yeah, I think fandoms are, are, are a strange thing. I think there's, especially now with uh, <laughs> again with social media, because now these people can <laughs> can gather and, and they can feed off of each other. Uh, so I do think it's interesting how fandoms have become so negative, or in some some cases, how mm -hmm. you just they're just really angry whenever they feel like their movies or whatever it may be is uh, disrespected or if someone doesn't enjoy them then they have to, this feel this need to attack where do you mm -hmm. think that might come from that that strange uh, rabid anger over uh, uh, entertainment i think it has to do with like the way social media encourages us to think about ourselves as brands or aligning with brands um which i think is very dangerous um and feeds into like kind of grotesquely capitalist logic that I find scary. Um, but I, I think that's part of it, like this brand allegiance thing. Even thinking about art in that way freaks me out. And I think as a result, um, we do see a cinema landscape that foregrounds like corporate authorship over individual authorship. I also don't like that. So I actually, I, I used to write a lot about um, Star Wars, I, I have been very outspoken about the fact that I think uh, the prequels are uh, great films and, and very undervalued. Um, and I stopped talking about Star Wars and writing about Star Wars altogether because the just the vitriol and the um, I, I was just like, I, I like I don't fucking need that. Like, I'm just writing criticism. Um, you don't have to, you know, make these awful assumptions about me as a human being because I have a different opinion from so I found especially that group um was just like unbelievably toxic and so I uh I was like I'm out I'm not talking about Star Wars ever again I will <laughs> so that's that's that yeah it's really it's very interesting the the this tribal um negative it's just really weird I, 
you know, if you criticize, like you said, Star Wars or certain types of movies and they come out, feel the need to come after you and, and shut you down. Or like strange. Marvel movies. It's like, really? You, you have to like defend this fucking corporate juggernaut? Like, I think Disney Marvel will be okay. Like, you don't, I don't get it. So anyway, sorry. I don't either. And don't get me started on a Marvel movie. So. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> me neither. <laughs> oh, boy. I can't stay awake through many of them. So. Oh, I know. They're awful, awful movies. Uh, but I'm not alone. <laughs> <laughs> no. I liked, again, before Disney bought Marvel, I think there were some good films. Like, I thought the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies were actually good films. Yeah. Uh, I actually think the Ang Lee Hulk movie is really interesting. Um, but yeah, you know, I've just, I've, I've caught the odd one. I'm like, yeah, I want to go see a fun comic book movie. And then it's just like this drudgery. I'm just like, what is this? Like they're incoherent. They're visually, they all look like they're shot in a Walgreens parking lot now. I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> anyway, sorry. I'm uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's a whole other thing. I'm just glad I'm not. I'm just glad I'm not alone because I wonder. Am <laughs> I the only one who doesn't like this crap? No, it's not. It's not just you. Okay, good. Uh, Jeff says I think anger over media is a good sign. It means that person is nearly out of real problems. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Silver lining. It's, yeah. Yeah. No disrespect to fans of the Marvel movies, by the way. Oh, I, I'm just uh, running off a little bit. Yeah. No. If if and that's the thing is if. If uh, people love them, and obviously many people love the the Marvel movies, and that's great, and the help power to them. Hope they watch it day and night, and they they have fun. But I just don't care for them. So <laughs> <laughs> any of that. Well, there are a couple that were okay, but uh, most of them I can't. I can't. Yeah. Do yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's a whole nother, whole nother. Thing. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I can I can yeah. talk for hours about that. Uh, Watts yeah. says, Last Blood is not a good movie. It's actually terrible, but it has a it's fascinating symptom of its time. Highly recommended. Interesting. Okay. Well, duly noted. I will have to check it out. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but uh, I remember being intrigued by it. I think Stallone is like an interesting, you know, cultural figure, and some of his work is great. Not all of it is great by any means. But I was like, oh, a new Rambo movie right now. Like, what what would that be like? And I just, I haven't checked it out yet, so. And uh, Juan mentioning that it's not a good movie, but it's highly highly recommended is, you know, I, I hear a lot of people say, you have to watch this movie. It's so bad, you have to watch it. Mm -hmm. Do you watch movies when you know it's going to be bad? Less and less as I, uh, I don't know, with time, like, I just, uh, I don't have time to watch. Something. Like I usually, if I go into a movie and like, I, I, at least, um, I, I have some modicum of expectation that I might enjoy it. Uh, I'm trying to think of, I guess one exception might be like, if I watch a movie on an airplane, I'll put on a movie that I have very low expectations. Like last time I flew an airplane, I watched Joker. Cause I was like, this is going to be stupid. Um, and actually it was uh, not as bad as I expected. I went in with very low expectations and I thought there were a few interesting things about it. It's not, it, I don't think warranted the strong reactions on either end of the spectrum. I think it's just kind of a whatever movie, but, uh, I didn't entirely hate it. So that's, that's good. That's, yeah. Uh, Caleb says, Mike and the spirit of Halloween and Jason, Michael, Freddie or Leatherface. Oh man. Ah, uh, 
Jason, Michael, Freddie, or Leatherface. Well, I love them all. Um, you know, they they all they all have a, a, a corner somewhere in my dark dark heart. Um, well, my I, you know what? I'll just have to pick my favorite movie out of the first. So, Friday the Thirteenth, uh, Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, or Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Texas Chainsaw Massacre to me is one of the greatest American films ever made. Uh, I love the way Leatherface uh, is depicted in that film. Um, there's actually kind of a weird pathos to Leatherface because he's kind of picked on by his family and he's like, um, they sort of use him in a way. Um, he also, you know, brutally murders several people and puts them in a freezer. But uh, so, yeah, I'll go with Leatherface. I like I like Freddy a lot, too, though. Those are probably my two favorites. Um and Robert England as Freddy Legendary. So, yeah. And you mentioned you you watched you like to watch 31 horror movies in October. What other movies did you rewatch? Um, I rewatched Exorcist and Exorcist 2. Hmm. Um, I watched two early 1930s films by a director named Victor Halperin. He did White Zombie with Bela Lugosi, and he did a lesser known film the next year called Supernatural, um, which I love. I rewatched Revenge of the Creature, which is the sequel to Creature from the Black Lagoon. I think it's really often overlooked um, and, and super interesting movie. Mm, those Rob Zombie ones. What else have I rewatched? I rewatched The Conjuring 2 because I hadn't seen The Conjuring 3, so I wanted to refresh myself on that. I rewatched Black Roses, which is a lot of fun if people want something that captures the spirit of the 80s heavy metal horror overlap that movie is is a great time um featuring a lot of good songs by a band called lizzie borden so uh yeah that's a good one that band does sound familiar lizzie borden yeah they're they're sort of like a glam metal band but definitely on the 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 better end of the spectrum because i think glam metal is largely atrocious shit. but uh <laughs> lizzie borden is pretty good actually well, I, I, we're agreeing a lot tonight. Yeah, uh, glam is not, yeah, not good. Like, uh, yeah, a couple, a couple like gems in there, but like the first couple Motley Crue albums, I think, are pretty good. Uh, Wasp, but most of it is just awful. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think ninety nine point eight percent of it is just. I think so. Yeah, not not a fan. Uh, wants his leather face for me too. Poor guy, he's just trying to keep the nuclear family together. Even without female family members, he's trying to make things work. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there's this kind of pathos to him when he gets in trouble for, you know, breaking the door. But again, he was he's just trying to keep things together. Um, yeah, that movie's really darkly funny, as distressing and horrifying as it is. There's some like there's some humor in it for sure. Uh, Caleb says, what about you? What, mm -hmm. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, what is your favorite? Who's your favorite boogeyman? That's a good question. Uh, from the list from uh, Jason, Michael, Freddy, or Leatherface? Hmm. Probably Freddy, just because yeah. I think he's the scariest. When I was younger, he scared the Jesus, the Jesus out of me. But uh, you can't really go wrong with any of them. No. Yeah, that's true. But I think Freddy was my, you know, whatever 10 year old self was afraid of it because you had no control over and you, you were afraid to sleep. So when you, it's when you're most vulnerable is when you're sleeping. So 
that's what's made him terrifying is you have to sleep. Yeah. Oh yeah. That movie's a stroke of genius, total lightning in a bottle. And I've, I revisited that one a lot. Um, and it's just like, it's, it always holds up. It's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, Dave says, just started the Conjuring series for the first time. Watch the Conjuring and Annabelle this week and the Conjuring two is tonight. Oh, cool. Nice. Yeah. I like, um, I like James Wan a lot, actually. I, um, feel like I was kind of on the fence about him for a while because um, I feel like his films are so much about the mechanics of designing scare sequences in a way, but I've come to appreciate that about him. I feel like he makes some of the best contemporary horror films about horror films. Like they're, they're sort of just about the craft of designing scare sequences of, um, of uh, building atmosphere and things like that. And The Conjuring is just like a really effective haunted house movie. Like it just, it, it works. Um, so, and his new one, Malignant, I, I had a lot of fun with too. I thought it was, you know, I had a good time with it. Speaking of, of divisiveness, I, I've heard, because I was really excited to watch that. And then I heard all this, it was either I loved it or I hated it. There was nothing in the middle. Those are usually the movies I like, so... Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I really liked it. Um, I think, uh, you know, it's it's James Wan in his more like bonkers mode. Uh, so I would say his um, his movie Dead Silence is a little bit like that, even uh, but he even has moments like that in like Insidious with the devil, uh, the demonic figure, like sharpening his fingernails while playing that record. Like he, yeah. he often has that kind of surreal borderline goofy imagery um uh and malignant has a lot of that sort of thing so what were your thoughts on the insidious series what what, did you like those movies uh i to varying degrees i um i think the the first one especially is really really good Mm -hmm. um yeah how about you did you like them i really liked the first one i thought what they did with the second one was okay i think they there was some there were some story aspects I didn't really care for. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it just did, wasn't very good. There was some really weird, uh, did it need to be made movies after that? Yeah. I guess the most recent one, uh, it's saving grace was that Lynn Shay was the lead and mm-hmm. she's awesome. But yeah, no, I agree though. Uh, and James Wan stopped directing them after the second one too. So, yeah. Yeah, I did. I, I really like, I think, um, Who's the director? He's from the one tree. Uh, he did Invisible, The Invisible Man. I forget his Lee name. Lee 1L, yeah. 1L, yeah. I think The Invisible Man is really good, too. Yeah, they're a, they're an interesting team. Um, it's cool to see, like, the way they kind of developed together their their styles in, in tandem with each other. Yeah. But I did the, the Conjuring universe, I think it was interesting. I think the first Annabelle wasn't very, it was kind of a mess. But I thought creation was okay. I think it was able to uh, to save some of the mistakes they made in the first one. What happens in creation again? If there are a few uh, Annabelle movies, right? I'm trying to remember which. Yeah, it's the it's the it's uh it's the origin story of the Annabelle doll. Okay. When the uh, the the uh, the couple they invite uh, the orphanage, the kids from the orphanage to come and live with them because they lost their daughter, and then that ends up being. The the doll used the loss of their daughter as a way to convince them to invite it in, and then it turned into a whole. Right. 
it's on it and it it plays almost like a like a haunted house movie a little bit if i recall yeah i, I like that one yeah i think i like that one yeah and um so the yeah that annabelle movie and there was the other um the other uh conjuring movie that came out a few months back did you see that one the uh, devil made me do it yeah without james wan at the helm and you could tell yeah. uh, i mean it was whatever i guess yeah <laughs> what did you think i didn't care for it i think yeah. they they're trying to make the warrens into these like superheroes instead of focusing on the stories and they tried to turn the warrens into these uh you know like these heroes who are falling off cliffs and it's just kind of silly yeah yeah this opportunity yeah i could feel the absence of james wan for sure yeah uh freddie always freddie respect i love freddie i love freddie Mm-hmm. And Dave says, I live in Connecticut, so it's doubly awesome. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I heard the third Annabelle movie was the first Annabelle flick that got it right. Yeah. Mm. Was that Creation? I think I think Creation's the second one, if I'm not mistaken. But I, may, I might be wrong. The first Annabelle movie is just, I think, called Annabelle. And then there's uh, Creation is after that, I believe. They've made quite a few. They're, they've, yeah. The Conjuring <laughs> Universe was a good idea, but was a you know it, it, yeah like the nun was yeah yeah, yeah. oh patrick was playing <laughs> acoustic all this song country too was where i tapped out it either works for you or it doesn't it's actually really funny my friend who was staying she cried during that scene i think and during a scene in conjuring three so she's like wow i cried at two of the conjuring movies which i thought was funny but uh yeah i mean you go with it or you don't i can see why that might be (laughs) might not work for everybody yeah it's a hit or miss kind of thing yeah that that was (laughs) kind of strange in the middle of a horror movie (laughs) yeah and i think last time we talked i think we talked a little bit about or maybe it was on twitter that you had mentioned uh alan moore's uh neonomicon and providence comic books did you have you read those not me must have been a different oh, okay. mike thorn maybe mike thrawn my uh yeah, yeah your yeah. evil twin yeah. yeah exactly yeah i was going to ask you what you thought about it. i i thought i thought it was I thought we had chatted about it, but maybe i'm wrong so uh jeff lane says which board got me as a kid i wonder if it would hold up today i watched that one within the past year or so on uh on vhs actually and um I don't know. I don't want to say too much because I don't want to spoil Jeff's relationship to that movie. <laughs> Report back, Jeff. Yeah, let us know what you think, Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. Conjuring 2 is basically a sentimental Christmas movie is actually what I noticed this time around. So that that Elvis singing scene is like, well, within the context of what James Wan is doing with this, it sort of makes sense. It's like, it's a very sentimental movie and it's it's it does have more of a kind of Christmassy spirit to it than... Um, than uh autumn i guess hmm. so he says my childhood avenger will be ruined <laughs> <laughs> well i hope it holds up for you um i actually don't remember a lot about it so so speaking of christmas movies let's try and settle a long a debate that people have been having for a long time is die hard a christmas movie of course oh. <laughs> yeah of course 
Okay. I mean, if, if you don't want it to be, that's fine. You don't have to call it that. That's okay. Yeah. Uh, for me, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's set on Christmas. It's, uh, Eyes Wide Shut is a Christmas movie. <laughs> why not? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Conjuring 2 is a Christmas movie. I'm adding it to the list. If you don't like it, uh, don't add it to your list. Okay. Uh, Dave says, uh, Krampus. Enough said. <laughs> I didn't catch Krampus, but... Uh... And uh, we are watching a movie called Apostle on Netflix. Have you seen that? The Netflix mm -hmm. movie? Okay. Mm -hmm. We're going to be discussing that next week. I was going to ask you what your thoughts were on it. Is that any good? Is it? Uh... I haven't seen it yet. Oh, we, okay. We chose it kind of randomly on, on Netflix, something that's accessible for, you know, we try and pick something on a streaming service. Mm -hmm. So it's more accessible. And we, it looked interesting. It had some pretty decent reviews. So, okay. Let's see what you thought about it. So, but yeah, we'll go in blind. Yeah. I feel like I'm actually a little bit behind with um, like recent horror releases. I, I did just catch Halloween Kills. I missed the new Candyman. I don't even know if that's still in theaters. I don't know. It's like, again, I, th I feel like due to the pandemic, just keeping up with recent movies is somehow harder. Like, I, I find I'm, I'm kind of going back more. Um, I just feel more drawn to older movies recently, too. Um, I, I saw the new Ridley Scott movie, The Last Duel, because I knew I didn't want to miss that on the big screen. So... But it's it's yeah. I feel like it's less often now that I'll watch something recent. What so. did you, what were your thoughts on the last duel? Like, because I hear great things about it. Oh, it's great. Yeah, it's uh, it's really complex and uh, um, it's a great movie about story. Uh, yeah, like how story functions, how point of view um, shifts, what a story does, what stories mean culturally. It's it's there's a lot of really cool stuff and it's just uh, you know a Ridley Scott epic so it has all the pleasures that you get out of that but it's it's also kind of unpleasant like it's it's dark it's like he's um he's reinterpreting a lot of I think the motifs and tropes that have been kind of threading throughout his career although I think Ridley Scott is also just generally smarter than he's given credit for so it's good shit. Uh, one says it's about a family coming back together, a common Christmas motif. Just like child's play. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Jeff says die hard equals Christmas. Yippee Kaye and happy new year. Very good. Uh, Dune was a good, good, well, Dune was a good big screen movie. Uh, I wonder if it would hit me the same on a TV screen. I have heard that my uh, screenwriting instructor was urging all of us to go see Dune. Uh, and for whatever reason, I've been reluctant because I'm like, yeah, but I haven't read the book, which doesn't make sense because I watched the David Lynch movie without reading the book. So maybe I should just go. Which, uh, which David Lynch movie? Uh, David Lynch did Dune in the 80s. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so. Um, and that's a weird movie. Yeah. That's the one with Sting in it, right? Is that? Is Sting in it? I'm trying to remember. Brad Dourif is in it with some incredible eyebrows. That's what I remember more than anything. So you can't beat incredible eyebrows. No. Yeah. Uh, Juan says I have noticed there's a lot more horror movies, uh, horror movies set on Christmas than Halloween, which is hilarious. That is interesting. Yeah. I guess it could be that thing about like um, the function of horror kind of uh, infecting the most comforting things for us or 
getting us at our most vulnerable. It's like, you know, when, when uh, a monster shows up on Halloween, you're like, yeah, okay, really? Like I knew this was Christmas though. That's not right. Yeah. Uh, okay. So Han says, yes, Sting is in it. Thank you. I couldn't remember for some reason. Yeah. Kyle McLaughlin. That's right. Yeah. Uh, same dilemma. I try to hurry up and read Dune before it disappears off HBO Max. Mm. Yeah, that was an even the trial. Yeah, no, there's no way I'll read it in time. So it's a matter of like deciding: do I want to see it in theaters or not? And I probably should see it in theaters. Mm. I heard it's a great. Ex- I heard it's really great on IMAX. But uh, I have to. It. Yeah, did, did you saw it? Yeah, we watched it here. Um, it was okay. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I'm actually hit and miss on Villeneuve. I think he's obviously a talented filmmaker. Um, I don't know. I don't even know if I've really connected to any of his films. I thought the movie Enemy with Jake Gyllenhaal was kind of interesting, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that movie. Uh, yeah, it was cool. I The visuals and the... Um, just really great visuals in, in Dune. I really loved the uh, presentation. Just the story was a little little dry i don't know and it i don't i don't want to say too much but it the end had me scratch my head a little bit but okay. if you read the book i'm sure it makes a lot more sense so i don't want to be that guy who's complaining that it doesn't make sense when i haven't read the book i haven't uh, seen his blade runner but i i do want to see that mm-hmm. yeah i've heard great things about that too me too I, I'm, I'm a fan of villeneuve so oh cool uh, takes takes Steve's Dune review with a grain of salt. He doesn't like Star Wars. <laughs> I'm not the biggest fan of Star Wars. Not a not a huge fan. And you know what? That's okay. That doesn't mean that you deserve to be villainized and vilified and uh, torn to shreds for having the wrong Star Wars opinion. That's yeah. fine. That's fine. Get, you know, we can all get along. We can all get along. It's okay. We can all coexist. Yeah. So I'm not a fan of, I don't like Marvel movies. I, I'm not a huge fan of Star Wars, although I do uh, see the why people like it. Mm-hmm. Marvel, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh... yeah. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike, I want to thank you. I, I'm, I feel so uh, honored that you came by to celebrate publication day with me. That's That's great because you could have gone anywhere and done with anyone. So I, I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on. Um, well, Juan, sorry, I just saw Juan has never watched yeah. any Star Wars films. Well, um, maybe keep it that way, actually. Maybe that's just a world better left unexplored at this point. It has been tainted by the tentacles of Disney. So, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, no, seriously, thank you so much. And thank you to everybody who, like, tuned in and asked questions. That's really cool and, and nice. So, appreciate it. I hope it was a memorable uh, when you look back when your next book releases you look back and say oh that was a fun time with peel back and see so that's it was a good time it was a great time i'm i, I really really appreciate it yeah uh let's see and uh there's still oh juan is unhealthily biased against sci-fi okay okay i mean star wars is more like sword and sorcery type stuff originally it's yeah you know then more than sci-fi a little, little more fantasy, yeah. I think fantasy, yeah. sci-fi. Uh, great conversation. Happy publication day. Congratulations. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, this, was, this was amazing. Thank you, Mike and Steve. Yeah, I really want to see, I hope you and Juan are able to connect because I really would love to see the two of you or listen to the two of you have a conversation. I think that'd be great. 
I would love that. Any, any time on. Yeah. Uh, Jeremy says, yes, congratulations. Thank you. And uh, Juan says, Dave, stop slandering me. <laughs> You're not the one that I hated. Oh, man, there's some <laughs> some drama going on. Yeah. Uh, Dave says, uh, thanks so much. Great job. Uh, thanks, Mike. Thanks so much for coming tonight. And thanks again for the incredible book. Congrats. Uh, thank you. Likewise. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, I hope everyone has a, a great Friday evening with what's left of it, depending on where you are at times on your end. Uh, so thanks for coming by to chat. And uh, Jeff says, great chat and congratulations, Mike. Thank you so much, Jeff. Yeah, so thanks everyone for coming by and asking questions and participating. It's been a great time. And want to say thanks uh, again to Mike for spending publication day with me. It's, uh, it's an honor. So I, I really appreciate it. Likewise, man. Great time. Mike, you rock. Back at you, Caleb. Thank you. <laughs> so have a good night, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Go back and go go read, peel back and see, and leave reviews on Amazon, Goodreads, and uh, where else? Uh, yeah, Amazon, Goodreads. Um, those are good. Tell your friends, tell your family, spread the pessimism. <laughs> Disturb your grandmother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Darius says, keep, keep looking after yourself, Mike. Thank you. Back at you. Everybody, keep, uh, keep looking after yourselves. These are scary times. Be nice to each other. Be nice to yourselves. Exactly. That's a great, great way to put it. So thanks again, everyone. We'll see you. Uh, see you next time. Yeah. Peace.